All right. Well, our current series is titled Follow. We've been learning what it really means to follow Christ. Today, we're going to finish up this series. And so to do so, we're going to start out by recapping a lot of what we've talked about over the last couple months. We started out by talking about what it means to follow someone. And we learned the difference between what the word follow means to those in the first century or what it meant to those in the first century compared to what it means to us today in the age of internet and social media. When we hear the word follow today, it just implies keeping up to date on what someone is thinking or doing, knowing what they had for lunch. I hated that when social media first came out. People say, I'm going to lunch now. I ordered a hamburger. And I'm thinking like, big deal, you know? And unfortunately, some of that has gone away, but we still follow people just to keep up on what's happening in their families, what's happening in their lives. We want to hear the cute things they have to say or, you know, see the, the uh, controversy they're going to stir up or, or something like that. But there's a lot of people we follow that we don't even know and we don't really care to know. We just kind of like the things that they're, that they're putting out there. We can follow someone from anywhere and get updates on their life in a matter of seconds. In the first century, following someone meant leaving everything that you had previously known and essentially moving in with them. Another name for followers back then was disciple. And Jesus wasn't the only one that had disciples. We talked about that. The best word that we have today to describe a first century disciple would be intern. But our internships today are still far removed from what it was like back in those days. A first century disciple wasn't eight to 10 hours. It wasn't like you were a resident, work finishing your, your medical schooling and you're a resident, so you're spending your, your waking hours, 10 to 12 hours, whatever, at the hospital, and then going back, back home. It wasn't eight to 10 hours a day. It was 24-7. A first century disciple lived wherever their master lived, ate when and where their master ate, and did whatever their master did or whatever their master told them to do. They observed how their master did things. They listened to every word uttered by their master and asked numerous questions to get clarification. They never questioned something that was being done. They never questioned, you know, why do you want me to do that? It's just, if you want me to do it, it's important. They would maybe ask for clarification. Okay, explain again exactly how you want it done because they wanted to do it exactly the way the master wanted it done. A first century disciple would never think of suggesting to their master that there was a different or better way to do something. The, their ultimate goal was to learn as much as they could from the master because they wanted to eventually be exactly like their master. They said, I want to be a clone of you. So I am going to listen to you. I am going to hold on to every word. I'm not going to figure out my own way to do it. I want to know how you do it. And you know, sometimes they might ask, why do you do that? Because they wanted clarification. It wasn't questioning them, should it really be done? They're just wanting to understand it so that they can, we talked one week about having the heart of Jesus. We need to have his heart because when we actually have his heart and we start thinking like he thinks, we automatically start doing things because we understand why he did things. A, a first century disciple believed that their master was the wisest person in whatever field they were in. And they were pursuing and understanding. They knew that they didn't have the correct understanding to make decisions on their own. So they said, I need you. You tell me how it should be. And I won't question it because you are wiser than I am. Now, if we think about ourselves and our relationship with Jesus, do we sometimes act like we know more than he does? 
Do we really believe that he's the wisest person and that what he says is the best for us? We may not always understand why. There's a lot of things in here. You know, if I was going to write this book, I think there were some things I would write differently. But I didn't write this book. And this book was written by the one who created us. And he knows what's best for us. He doesn't write things just because he likes to make rules. He knows what is best. And if we could really understand that, we would say, you know, I don't, I don't like it. Uh, I don't know why, but I trust you that you know what's best. So I will simply obey. I will simply follow. One week we talked about the game of follow the leader that we all played as kids. We discussed the fact that there's that only one person can be the leader. It's not follow the leaders, follow the leader. Only one person gets to decide where to go and what to do. Everyone else simply does what the leader does. And one of the points that we emphasized several times was, Jesus never asks if he can follow us around and bless what we want to do. But he does ask us to follow him and be part of what he's doing. We talked about the invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples and learned that he is still giving the same invitation to us today. In Matthew chapter four, we read about one day when Jesus was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew, Peter and Andrew were common fishermen. That's how they earned a living. They were working hard that day, casting their nets into the lake and pulling in their catch. And Jesus walked up to them and said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And verse 20 says, at once they left their nets. They left their livelihood. They left everything they had once known and they followed him. And we learned that that wasn't the first encounter these men had with Jesus. We, we showed, I showed in the Bible where they had already had contact with him. They had already decided before that invitation came, they had already decided this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. All they needed was an invitation to attach to him 24 seven. And when he gave that invitation, they didn't hesitate because they already were convinced. And maybe that's the problem with some of us is we're not really convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. Because if we are convinced that he is the son of God, actually that he is God, if we are convinced that he's the one that created us, if we are actually convinced that he's the one that has the answers, wouldn't we be willing to follow him? So first we have to come to the understanding. Yes, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the son of God. I believe that you are the one that has the answers for my life. And if we understand that, the same invitation that he gave to those men is for us. He says, come follow me. If you really believe what you say you believe, come follow me. And why wouldn't we choose to follow? In essence, what Jesus said to the two of them that day was, I understand your preoccupation with catching fish and how important that is to you. But if you really believe that I am the Messiah, then I want to challenge you to give your lives to something that is significantly more important than catching fish and paying your bills. Now, one reason they were fishermen was because they had bills to pay. We all have bills to pay. We have to do that. But sometimes we get so preoccupied in that that we neglect to do what's really important. He says, I want you to give that up for something that's more important. 
if you will trust me with your whole life and follow me, I will teach you how to invest your life in the most important mission of all. Instead of catching fish, I will teach you how to catch people. A short time later, Jesus walked by a table where a man named Levi, who we know as Matthew, was collecting taxes. And Mark chapter 2 simply says, as, or verse 14 says, as he, Jesus, walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And I mentioned, I think there was probably a little bit more to the conversation than what we read. A lot of what we have here, this isn't the full text. I think the conversation is a little bit longer than that. I think really Jesus kind of said the same thing to Matthew, just in different words. He told the fishermen, give up your fishing for fish, come fish for men. For Levi, he probably said, give up your collecting taxes and I will teach you how to collect people. But once again, he was saying, that's important to you now. I'm giving you the opportunity to do something that's even more important. Now, we could spend time talking about the dishonesty of the tax collectors in those days, or how the tax collectors were traitors to their own people because they were working for Rome, etc. But all that would be speculation. We don't know enough about Matthew. He possibly was one of those crooked tax collectors. But for all we know, Matthew could have been one of the only honest tax collectors. There's a possibility the reason he became a tax collector was he didn't like the way the other tax collectors were cheating people. And he said, I'm only going to collect what's due and that not add on a percentage for me. He could have actually been a good guy. And Jesus just gave him a chance to become a better guy. We don't know how, why he had become a tax collector or how honest or dishonest he was. But we do know that until he met Jesus, collecting taxes was important to him. Jesus simply gave him an opportunity to get involved in something that was more important. Jesus wasn't knocking the businesses that these men were in. He wasn't knocking the fishing business or the tax collecting business any more than he would have knocked the woodworking business, which he had spent 30 years doing prior to doing what he was actually called to do. There's nothing wrong with any of those occupations or the food business, or the travel business, or the insurance business, or any other, and i got to put this on there, any other wholesome business, because there are a few businesses that people should not be involved in. But for the most part, business is business. And as long as we're doing it for the right reasons, and bringing God the glory through it, there's nothing wrong with the career you have chosen. But no earthly enterprise is as important as the business of bringing lost people to Christ. No matter how successful we are in our business dealings here on earth, we can't take any of it with us when we die. There's only one investment that we can make that lasts for eternity. The soul-saving enterprise should be central to the lives of all of Christ's followers, regardless of what they do for a living. We all have to make a living, but that is not our calling. That is not our mission, and we need to keep that in sight. True followers of Jesus must eventually come to the conclusion that there's nothing more important than reaching people with the gospel. When we do, our values will change. 
we will be seized by the realization that every other earthly activity pales in comparison with helping an individual man, woman, boy, or girl come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. When we finally come to that understanding, we'll begin to live differently. We'll pray differently. We'll love differently. We'll work differently. We'll serve differently. And we'll give differently. We will become preoccupied with people and their spiritual needs. And we will want to know how we can become more effective fishers of men. Let me ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer out loud, but think about it. Has that kind of thing happened to you yet? Have you come to that conclusion that the most important thing in life is telling other people the good news about Jesus? There are a lot of other things we can do, and they're not bad, but they're not as great as the calling that Jesus gives to us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter describes what will happen on the day of the Lord. He says that everything so many of us are concerned about is going to be burned up. In 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You hear that? The earth and everything done here will be laid bare. The next verse, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He goes on to say, living holy lives, godly lives. All that kind of stuff. But if we really believe that everything here will disappear then how should we live our lives? It's a good question. If you knew that you would die tomorrow or next week, or if you knew that Christ would return next week, how would you live today differently? The truth is none of us know exactly when he's going to come, or we don't know how many more days we have on this earth, but we should be living each day as if it's our last one. Who do we still need to tell the good news of the gospel? Because when it's over, it's over. If we really believe that, how should we be living our lives today? Why waste or why invest ourselves in things that aren't going to last? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about competing in the games. Verse 25 of chapter 9, he says, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. It doesn't matter how many trophies you have, how many ribbons you have. They're not going with you. They're going to disappear. Somebody's going to be cleaning them out and say, what do I do with these things? They might mean something to you. Those trophies aren't going to mean something to anybody else. In fact, when Cassie got married, she had all these trophies. And they were gotten for most of her. I mean, she had some Pinewood Derby trophies and stuff. But, you know, she also had some Bible quiz trophies from Junior Bible Quiz. She had tons of trophies. And we had to build a whole shelf in her room when she was at home for all her trophies. You know, when she got married, all those trophies went into boxes. And they went in our garage. And finally, when they got their own house, he said, okay, you got to take these with you. We don't want them. They really don't mean anything to us. I know they mean something to you, but they really have no significance. And I'm not sure she may still have them up in her garage. I don't know. Maybe she finally came to the same conclusion, but they're just collecting dust. They meant something at the time. They mean nothing now. 
We need to invest in something that will last for all eternity. Paul was saying, in effect, don't get all cranked up about the wrong race. Rather, set your sights on winning the right race. The one that makes your life count for all eternity. By the way you serve God and the way you serve people. In reality, only a few of us will be asked to leave our nets and abandon our professions. Some of us will be led by God to make ministry our career. But the vast majority of Christians will be asked to function within their present occupation. You are there, that is your occupation, but that's not your calling. That's not your mission. That is a way to put food on your table. We all need that. But more than that, that is your mission field. That is your ministry. That should be used as a means to point people to Jesus. Even those of us that are called to be career ministers sometimes have to have another occupation to keep the food on the table. But regardless of what we do for an occupation, all of us are challenged by Jesus to do so with a whole new mindset. One that reflects God's perspective on the eternal importance of people. To be totally honest, even those who have been called or have chosen ministry as a career need to constantly remind themselves that the only thing that really matters is people. Because we can get so busy running the business of the church that we lose sight of what the Father's business is really all about. People are His business. And as a pastor, there are a lot of things I have to do because of my occupation, because of what I got. I got to keep things running smoothly. But I can get so involved in that that I don't take time to do what's really important. I'm thankful that Peter and Andrew chose to major in the people business rather than the fishing business. And in John 21... After Peter's miserable failures, he thought about going back to catching fish. But Jesus went to him and renewed his challenge to stay preoccupied with people. Three times, Jesus told Peter to stay with the people business. Don't go back. That was your former life. Don't go back. I called you to be a fisher of men. Don't go back to the real fish. Stay with my business, the people business. So what will we do? How and where will we invest our lives? We all have an occupation. We all have hobbies. None of those things are wrong, but they can't become the focus of our lives. The only thing that matters to God is people. And people must be our priority too. Each day should start with a simple prayer. Today, let me do more than merely catching fish. Help me do more than selling a product. Inspire me to go beyond providing a service. Enable me to touch a human life. Work through me to reach someone for you. Because I want to be in the people business. I'm going to my occupation. But I want 
to touch somebody. And I try to pray that prayer every morning. Sometimes I, I forget, I get preoccupied, I forget. But I try to pray that every morning. God, today, bring somebody into my life and give me the wisdom to know what, how to share with them. Interrupt my day. When's the last time you asked God to interrupt your day? We usually don't want interruptions. God, I've got so many things on my plate today. Please don't bring me in any interruptions. Well, are you open to God interruptions? To divine appointments? I pray, God, interrupt my day. The things that are really important, he's still going to make time for me to do. And there's a lot of things that I do that, to be honest, probably aren't really that important. God, please interrupt my day. Interrupt my schedule. Give me something that really matters. So we should start our day with that prayer. Today, help me to remember the most important thing is people. But as we bring this series to a close, for this last little bit we have left, I want to look one more time at Jesus' famous last words. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth, we've got to keep that in mind, His authority is not in heaven, His authority is here on earth too. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I have the authority, now I'm using my authority and giving the command. We have to decide what we're going to do with the command. But because I have the authority, this is what I want you to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are several important things that we notice in this command. First, we notice to whom he was talking. He was talking to his disciples, his followers, okay? Not just those that were there, but anyone who says, I'm a follower of Christ. That generation is gone, but we're still here. It's still the same words for us. If we are his disciple, if we are his followers, then the command is for us. His early, if his early disciples hadn't embraced the mission and hadn't taken over his work on earth, then his life would have been in vain. He would have come for nothing. He was leaving but the mission was not complete. He said, I'm now passing that mission on to you. And if they had said, well, our leader is now gone, so we're going to go back to our old lives, Jesus would have died in vain. Who would know? Who, 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 who would even know what happened? But Jesus said, it's your job to share the gospel and to teach what I have taught you. Without followers who would continue the mission, no one would be saved. And if we don't embrace it today, the result will be the same. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how, they can, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? See, people aren't just going to come to Christ because we want them to come to Christ. Somebody has to share the good news with them. Someone has to preach the gospel. And that word preacher doesn't mean what I do here on Sunday morning. Somebody has to be the bearer of that news. The second thing we notice is that we must go to the lost. Jesus didn't tell them to wait for the lost to come to them. 
He didn't say go build a building somewhere and put a sign out there that says church and expect them to come. He said, you need to go. Now, a lot of his disciples were fishermen. Probably half of them were fishermen. The fishermen knew that if they were going to catch fish, they had to go to where the fish were at. We can have all the meetings we want to have right here in this building. But the fish aren't here in this building. If we want to catch fish, we have to go to where the fish are. And we have to use the right bait. Those of you who use fish know that. You can't just go out there and throw out anything. You have to use the right bait, too. You have to go to the fish, and you have to use the right bait. And different fish bite on different things. We have to help kind of learn to understand our audience to know what are they attracted to? How can, how can we reach them? Okay? Better yet, Jesus, what Jesus really said is do this as you're going. That's the correct interpretation. Go back to the original language. As you are going, as you are going on. Now, there were the group that were called to be the full time, the apostles. But for the rest of them is as you're going through life, as you're doing what you're doing, go with the purpose of reaching people with the gospel message. Most of us are not called to give up. Some will might be, and if God's calling you, listen. Most of you will not be asked to give up your current occupation, but you are asked to use your occupation or your school or whatever it is, your neighborhood, to share the gospel. Jesus never commanded the world to go to church, but he did command the church to go into the world. I think we bought into this concept that if we can just build a bigger and better facility, and if we can develop better and more entertaining programs, people will automatically come to us. Let me tell you what I've observed. Better buildings and better programs don't attract sinners. They already have plenty of buildings and plenty of programs to choose from. And most of them are better than anything that we can offer, at least from the entertainment side. The only people that are attracted to church buildings and church programs are the people who are already part of the church. We simply move people from one part of the body to another. They go, hey, they got a nicer facility. They got a better program. I'm going to go over there. But it's doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't care. See, that's one of the, the, the tensions that, that, that I have in, in ministry. We have a facility. We need to keep up our facility. We need to keep it updated. We need to think, how can we better do ministry? You know, and you know, putting in smart thermostats to help us control the, the, the heating bills and that kind of stuff. I mean, there, there are things we do. We can't let the building fall apart. We have to keep it up. We got to invest in new technology because we're going to have trouble getting people coming in here if we're still, you know, living with overhead projectors. You know, I mean, most people don't even know what overhead projectors are. We, we've got to... <laughs> We have to do certain things, but we got to do them within reason. And all those things we do have to be to accomplish the purpose, not just to attract people because the people we need to reach, they're not going to come just because we have the newest, greatest, most expensive, fanciest. They got other places to go. I remember years ago, I got contacted by a church, a large church in Florida that asked if I would consider coming and being their children's pastor. They had heard about me from somewhere, I don't know where, but they said, we heard that you're you know, one of the most creative and all that kind of stuff. And they said, we'd like you to come and develop a program. This church was about 5,000 people. 
Big church would have been great. Great salary, a lot more than I was making. I mean, it was like in the flesh, it would be, yeah, I'm going there. They said, we need somebody to come in here and build and, and, and design. We're getting ready to build a new children's wing. We need somebody to come in here and, and build something that, that just, will just amaze people. And we need somebody to develop a program for kids that is so exciting that the families won't be going to Disney World every other week. Because this church was half a mile from Disney World. And they said, we've got problems. Our people all have season passes. And every other week, they're at Disney World. And we need something that will attract the rest of the community to come to the church. You've got to build us something that's better than, than, than Disney World. And I'm thinking about that. How can I compete against Disney World? First off, if people are skipping church for Disney World, now I'm not saying you can't go on a vacation and go occasionally, but if they're skipping church every Disney World, that's, that's a hard issue. That's not an entertainment issue. Yeah. You know, so there's something bigger there at stake. But we bought into this thing that if we could just get the best program or the best building, people are going to come. It doesn't work that way. It might attract somebody who thinks our church looks a little nicer than theirs or has a, a different program than theirs, but it's not going to reach those that really need to be reached. They are not going to come to us. We have to go to them. When we concentrate our efforts on those other things, we're simply playing into the consumer mentality that really has no place in the church. Last week, we talked about being salt and light. We learned that in order for salt to have any effect, it must come in contact with something that is not salt. It doesn't do any good for us to be salty here in this building because everybody else in this building is salt. We need to go out and come in contact with something that is not salt. The salt doesn't do any good if it stays in the salt shaker. We can spend all our time building bigger and better salt shakers to hold the salt, or we can get the salt out where it's actually needed. Now, the final thing I want to point out from Jesus' command is that he promised to be with us always. I'm sure his disciples were wondering how they were going to continue the mission without Jesus. But Jesus said, you won't be alone. I will be with you in spirit. In fact, he said, I am going to send you another, one that's equal to me. I am going to send you the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that I had, the same spirit that enabled me to do the ministry while I was here. He's now going to be your spirit, and I will be with you in spirit, so you will not be alone. Because how many know it's a little bit scary to go out there? That Jesus said, I'm sending you out as, as sheep among wolves. It is scary. But when we remember we're not alone, even though I walk through the dark valleys, I won't be afraid because my big brother, my father, my whatever is with me. So I'm going out into a scary world, but I'm not going alone. Again, without actually saying it, We've bought into this idea that we have to go to church to be with God. I can't wait to go to God's house. Did you know that God doesn't live in this building any more than he lives in Taco Bell? God lives in us. And his desire is for us to take him to the world. Because the world is not going to meet him unless they meet him through us. 
We need to gather together to get refueled, refreshed, encouraged, challenged. But out there is where the real ministry happens. The challenge and mission that Jesus gave us would be far too great and overwhelming without God's help. But Jesus promises to be with us through the Holy Spirit. His presence, protection, and provision is ours all the way to the end. And the end hasn't come yet. It's getting closer, but it hasn't come yet. He will enable us to have maximum impact. And He will make our efforts fruitful. But we have to put in the effort. If we don't put in the effort, He can't multiply our effort. He can't make it fruitful. We have to do our part before He can do His part. So let me ask you, is this mission of Jesus one that you can get excited about embracing? Is it one that will be worth getting out of bed for every day? Some of us don't really like our jobs. Oh, do I really have to get up and go to work again today? Can I just stay here? Well, I don't care what you think about your job. We should be excited. This is another day to share the gospel. This is another day for me to tell somebody about Jesus. Today is the day that somebody's going to pray the prayer with me. Is that something that could get you out of bed? Maybe you've heard the story of Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computers. He realized that the incredible growth of his corporation required the hiring of an experienced executive who could provide overall leadership. So he went after a top executive with Pepsi-Cola named John Scully. After whining and dining him a bit, he started to get the sinking feeling that Scully was going to turn down his offer. So Jobs took him to the top of an apartment building overlooking Central Park and made his final last-ditch effort to try to get him to join Apple Computers. Jobs said to Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? And in his book, Scully writes that this challenge knocked the wind out of him. And eventually it prompted him to leave Pepsi and join Apple Computers. Because he said, you know what? That's a cause that's going to make a difference. You know what? We have something that can make bigger difference than an Apple computer. We can sell a PC. No. <laughs> But we can ask the same question. Do we want to spend our lives doing what we've always done? Or do we want to invest our lives in something that is going to change the world? It's our choice. In our mission as Christians, God has given us the challenge of changing the world. One person at a time. Isn't today a good day to mark as the day that you and I decided there's more to life than just selling sugar water? Wouldn't it be an ideal day to say, God, with your help, I'll go. And through your power, I will be a world changer. Louise Pasteur, the pioneer of immunology. So he's the one you could thank for all of the immunizations that we have. He lived at a time when thousands of people died each year of rabies. Pasteur had worked for years on a vaccine. And just as he's about to begin experimenting on himself a nine-year-old boy named Joseph Meister was bitten by a rabid dog. The boy's mother begged Pasteur to experiment on her son. So he finally acquiesced and he gave injections to Joseph for 10 days. The treatments worked and the boy lived. Decades later, when someone asked Pasteur what he wanted etched on his gravestone, he asked for three words. Joseph Meister lived. When we get to heaven... 
Our greatest joy and reward will be those who live eternally because of what we did here. Are there any names that could be etched on your eternal gravestone? This person lived because of me. This person lived because I took the command seriously. I made a difference in this person's life. So how does that all work in the real world? Well, let me tell you part of how it works for me. Besides doing this here, I drive school bus for the city of Yakima. Now, I originally got into that partly to get insurance because I don't have an insurance plan through the church. They have an awesome insurance plan there. There are other reasons why I'm doing that. You know, it was great to, to get the insurance, but it's also, I did that because I wanted to get out there in the real world. You know, I spend most of my time with church people and I love you guys, but you guys are already here. You know, I want to have an impact with other people. So I said, okay, I'm going to go out. They're going to pay me to be a missionary in the, in the public school system. Okay. So I am, that is not just a job. That is my mission field. And I make an effort to have chance. Every day I pray, God, give me somebody to talk to, whether it be a student, whether it be a, a teacher as I'm letting the kids off the bus, whether it be another driver, give me opportunities. And, and I got to be careful with what I say. I mean, there are rules what I can and can't talk about, you know, but I am also allowed to talk about what, what I believe in. And so I'm looking for opportunities. Now I could just go and do my job. And I'd have very little contact with anybody. But I make it a point at least twice a week to go early for my afternoon route because I know there are going to be drivers that are hanging out in the break room. And I get to go hang out with them. There are some drivers who I found out are believers. There are a couple drivers that I've been working with for five years and I didn't even know they were a believer until this year. Because they just show up and they leave and they never talk to anybody. And so even me being a believer didn't even know they were a believer. And I've asked them, they never show up for any of the socials. I mean, they do, they do, you know, potlucks. We all know what potlucks are, right? They do potlucks for holidays. These other drivers that are believers, I never see them at the potlucks. I say, why don't you come? I, say, I don't want to hang out with those people. I can't, I, you know, I, 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 don't, I want nothing to do with them. And I'm saying, that's why I'm here, is to be with them. And in those opportunities, it's when I have a chance to speak into their lives. And it's, sometimes they'll come to me with something going on. Now, are any of them coming to church here yet? No, but I got a couple that are coming real close. But it's not really about coming to church. It's about the change in heart first, because that happens first before they come here. There's one particular driver that has really started opening up to me. And it, for the first four years, she just walked by me and wouldn't even say anything, just walk on by me. And just this year, I found out she, she asked me permission to call me Preacher Jerry. She said, I've already been calling you that. And she says, that's how I distinguish. We have three Jerry's. She says, we have Mechanic Jerry, your Preacher Jerry, and then there's just Jerry. That's, so that's, that's how I refer to you with other drivers. I call you Preacher Jerry. She says, is that okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine with that. She says, well, you have to know, when I first started calling you that, that wasn't a, a, a term of endearment. She says, to me, that was actually like, he's a preacher, stay away from him. I did not mean it. It's just like Christian. We like the word Christian. When they first started calling people Christian, it wasn't something that, that was a, a thing. They, they were saying, oh, those people are like 
Christ. They're Christians. We don't want anything to do with them because they're acting like this, this, this weird guy. It, it was a derogatory thing to her to call me Preacher Jerry. But she has started open. She says, you know what? She says, I've never wanted anything to do with preachers. I've never wanted anything to do with Christians because they just have left a bad taste. Because preachers are preachy. That's what they do. They just go around telling you you're going to hell. I don't need to hear that. I know I'm probably going to hell, but I don't need to hear it. And Christians, they're judgmental. I wanted nothing to do with them. But she said, you're different than every Christian I've ever met. You're different than every preacher I've ever, ever met. That's how it works for me. But if I wasn't out there spending time with them, how would, and it takes time. It's an investment. It takes time. It doesn't usually happen overnight. You know, she's probably going to have to come in contact with some more genuine Christians before she's really ready to make the decision. But too many people have a bad impression of Christianity. And how are they going to have a good impression of Christ if they don't know some genuine Christians? And how are they going to get to know the genuine Christians if we refuse to spend time with them? Colossians 4, 6. Because, you know, being a missionary, fulfilling the Great Commission, doesn't necessarily mean that we stand on a street corner on our soapbox preaching to everybody that goes by. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. We don't just dump it all out there, but we put enough of it into our conversations that it begins to attract people. And they begin to say, I want to know more. So let your conversation, first of all, let's talk about this first part. Let your conversation always be full of grace. This driver told me her contact with Christians has not been positive. So that tells me their conversations were not full of grace. Their conversations are full of condemnation and judgment. Our conversations here should be full of grace. How many times do we find ourselves saying something to somebody here that's not even full of grace, but is even more important out there? Or what we post on Facebook. Is it full of grace? And then seasoned with salt. We are the salt of the earth. And we talked about that last week a little bit more. Just enough salt at just the right time to make things better. That's how we win the world. But we don't win it by staying here. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And again, we don't use the same approach with everybody. We've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. What's the approach that I use with this person? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. First off, they have to see that you have a hope. They have to see that you're different. Why will they ask you why you're different if they don't even know you're different? Because you've never spent time with them. So we first have to have the personal contact. And then we need to be prepared to give an answer when they do ask. Because sometimes it's like, oh, now they ask, what do I say? Again, the Holy Spirit helps us with those things. Always be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Can we respect somebody who's of the world? 
but they don't believe anything I believe. Their language is not what I agree with. Their lifestyle, how can I respect them? You know, respect is different than approving of. And all we have to do is look at Jesus, how he lived his life. <laughs> Who did he hang out with? I mean, he had his group of disciples, but he was always looking for the other people. He said, you know what? You're already mine. I'm looking for those who I don't have yet. And so he was going out and what, dining with the prostitutes and the, the tax collectors and the, the heathens. says, that's my mission field. You guys here, I'm gonna, you keep following me because I want to teach you to do what I'm doing, but that's really why I'm here. I've already reached you. There are other people that I need to reach. So you need to get alone with God. First off, you got to get excited about the mission. Okay, if you can't get excited about the mission, then, you know, I, I can't control that. But if you say, yes, this is something that I can invest my life in, then you need to say, God, how can I do this in the real world? Your situation's different than mine. If you want to drive a school bus, we got openings. Well, I'd be glad to have you come help. Isaiah will get you involved. His mission field, a lot of it's at the school. He's also works for the school system, but in a different capacity. And he's been talking, and we had one of the teachers that he's been working on for several years actually attend a few weeks ago, and she's been asking him questions since then, and she says she's going to be back. She kind of likes, she doesn't understand it yet, but she kind of likes it. You know, she found out she, the roof didn't cave in on her when she came in this place. But it's taken a few years to get there. I don't know what it looks like for you, but your life is more than going to work and coming home. You know, sometimes don't just go into your garage and then walk into the house. Your neighbor's out mowing the lawn. Go have a conversation with them. We can't change the world if we don't have contact with them. So ask God, how can I be involved? He's not going to ask you to stand up here and preach on Sunday. Well, maybe he will and I'll let you. Probably not. But you can make a difference if you rely on the Holy Spirit's power and if you embrace the mission and realize that you're here for more than what's here. You're here to invest in what's there.